If you'd open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 3, please, Nahum chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 8 to 19, finishing the book of Nahum tonight, next Sunday night, Lord willing, we'll introduce to you the book of Zephaniah. You follow along as I read, beginning at verse 8, are you better than no Amon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Pute and Lubim were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, And all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall to the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege, strengthen your fortifications, go into the clay and tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. Their fire will consume you, the sword will cut you down, it will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust, multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You've increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there's no one to regather them. There's no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually. Let's pray. Father, these are serious words that you've revealed in Scripture, and we know that all Scripture is profitable. It's inspired of you. We know that these things that are written in the Old Testament are to be understood accurately and applied to our own lives and to our own country. And so we would pray, Lord, that as we analyze this conclusion of the book of Nahum, that you would be about allowing us the privilege of understanding what this text is saying. And we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Not long after the church age began, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter and John caused quite a stir in the temple when they healed a guy who had been lame from birth. People were amazed, so Peter started telling them about Jesus Christ and their need to believe in him, but he warned them with these words, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people, and likewise all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward, also announced these days. What the Apostle Peter said is all the prophets of the Old Testament have warned you that if you don't turn to the Lord and if you don't turn to a right relationship with God, you're going to be destroyed. All the prophets have said that and they've predicted that. All of the prophets have said before the Lord returns, he's going to destroy evil and wicked people. 
Now, these minor prophet books in the Bible are neglected books, and they're ignored books, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons why they are ignored and neglected is most don't like the message of these books. These books are serious warnings, and that's why a lot of churches and many ministers don't teach these books, because they predict destructive judgment is going to come to those that aren't right with God, and they drive that point home, and people don't like to hear that. Now, Nahum is one of the prophets, and the book of Nahum has been saying to the people of Nineveh, you're corrupt. You are heading to the ferocious judgment of God. So Nineveh becomes an object lesson for all wicked nations. Israel becomes an object lesson for all wicked cities. It becomes a nation for all wicked people. It becomes an illustration of that. And what we see here is that God predicts that this judgment destruction, that he will bring on the godless places and powers before he blesses his people. In other words, God is going to bring judgment that's destructive on godless places and powers before he finally blesses his people. Now, one of the most fearful things that anyone can ever hear from a doctor is there's nothing more we can do. That is about as serious a message that anyone could ever hear. One doctor said, even when I have to say that, and even when it's true, I try to give my patient hope. But just imagine a doctor saying to you, there's nothing more we can do, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do everything within my power to make you completely miserable until you're brought to total destruction. That gives you some perspective of what God's doing here to Nineveh. God says, I'm going to destroy you, and before I do destroy you, I'm going to make your life completely miserable. I'm going to target you. There's not a thing you'll be able to do to stop this. As H.A. Ironside said, this judgment of God had reached a point where it was beyond healing. Now, there are two prophetic realities that Nahum presents as he brings his writing to a conclusion. The first one is, he informs Nineveh that she's no better than no Amon. We read in verse 8, are you better than no Amon? Now, when God asked that question, are you better, what he's basically saying is, do you think you're going to fare better than they did? Do you think you're going to end up happily ever after better than what they ended up? Now, it's important because what God does here is he uses a specific city that they know about. They're very much aware of what happened to that city. And they were, in fact, part of the destruction process which means prophecy is always fulfilled in a literal way. Now, no Amon was a city of Amon. Amon is how you pronounce it in Hebrew, actually. And the word no that's before it is the Hebrew word that comes from an Egyptian word, which means city. So it's city of Amon. The Greek name of the city is Thebes. It was a major spectacular city in Egypt. In fact, it was the capital city of northern Egypt. At the time that the events that he's referring to took place, Amon was the sun god, the chief god of the Egyptians. These Assyrians were well aware what happened to that city because they were part of the process of literally destroying it. Esarhaddon and Assurbanipal conducted five campaigns against this particular city from the years 674 to 664 BC. So when Nahum describes this city and he asks the question, do you think you're better than them? They knew exactly what he's describing. They understand what he's talking about here. 
At one time, that city had been something, and Nahum brings out five historical facts about it. He said that city was on the waters of the Nile. That's what he says in verse 8. It was situated on the waters of the Nile. It was a magnificent city. It was located on the Nile River in Upper Egypt. It was located about 500 miles south of modern-day Cairo. The main temples of Karnak and Luxor were there, plus there was the Avenue of the Sphinxes. People still travel to this area, Karnak, today to see this stuff. There was the Egyptian kings like Ramesses and Tutmosis and Tunak Hamun, which is King Tut. They were buried in those tombs that was called the Valley of the Kings. In fact, today, you can travel there, see the ruins of this place. They're quite spectacular. There are some standing columns that are 40 to 60 feet high, an impressive temple complex that draws tourists from all over the world. It was a spectacular city. So when Nahum says this to this city, they basically know, well, we know that city. We know what it was. The second historical fact is it was a city that had the security of water around it. Verse 8 says, whose water surrounded it. Just as Nineveh was sitting on the Tigris River, so this city was on the Nile River. Not only were there several channels of the Nile that surrounded the city, they made these moats. And more than one campaign had tried to go up against this city of Noaman, and they weren't able to do it because of the water. I mean, when you've got all of these channels that are surrounding a city, it makes it an excellent city to protect. And the water would make it difficult for easy access for any enemy to go in there. And the people living there in that city thought, we're invincible. And they pretty much were for a lot of years. From about 2000 B.C. to 663 B.C., I mean, this was a spectacular city. It was probably one of the most secure cities on the face of the earth. The third historical fact is it was a city that had protection of the sea. That's what he says in verse 3, whose rampart was the sea. The Red Sea was located to the east of the city. You have the Mediterranean Sea that's located to the north. Now to get to Noamon, you had to either come down the Nile or cross land and cross all of those tributary areas that were there. I mean, when you look at this city on a map and in its location, you'd say that is a perfect location. Nobody can bring that city down. And that city is sitting pretty. The fourth historical fact is it was a city that formed strong protective alliances. Verse 9, Ethiopia was her might. Egypt, too, without limits. Pute and Lubim were among her helpers. I mean, the leaders of this Egyptian city, they'd wind and dine the, the best leaders of the world that were located near her. I mean, they made people her friends and allies. Ethiopia was to the east. You had Egypt to the north, Put to the south, Lubim to the west. They all became her allies. This was a big commerce city, and these political leaders made big deals with other nations. They did business stuff, a lot of business things, and they all seemed to be very supportive of the city. So the city not only sits in a beautiful location where you're surrounded by water, but you have this group of people who have become your good friends, and certainly you're living in that city thinking, well, nobody can get at us. We're in a city here that's geographically almost impossible to attack, and plus we have all of these political alliances that we've made. We are protected, we're prominent, we're prosperous, and Nahum says to the city of Nineveh, you knew that. You knew that about that city. I mean, it's just like us in our country. We make all these deals with foreign nations, and we think they're our friends. 
But if God says, I'm going to destroy you, it doesn't matter who the alliances are. I mean, you could have alliances with Mexico, Canada, China, Japan, any nation in the world isn't going to be able to stop it. Which brings us to the fifth historical fact. It was a city that was conquered and destroyed. Look at verse 10. Yet, here's this city, sits on the Nile, it's got the water, it's got the sea, it's got all these good relationships with other nations. Yet, she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all their great men were bound with fetters. Nahum brings out four realities about this city, as impressive as it was. In 663 B.C., King Ashurbanipal led his Assyrian forces to bring her down in judgment. The very people to whom this book of Nahum is written were the people that God used who'd been responsible for the destruction of the city. And what that tells us about God is he can use government powers from other nations whenever he wants to carry out his will of demolishing another power. He can do it directly from heaven, which he does in the tribulation period. We saw that in the book of Revelation. He'll pour out judgments directly from heaven, but he can also take different powers, government powers, and he can take one nation and say, I'm going to use you as a nation to destroy this nation. And there are four realities about the downfall that he brings out. The people who lived in the city were exiled. That's what verse 10 says, yet she became an exile. Asher Banapal decided to take what he could with him and exile it and take it back to Nineveh or burn it down if he couldn't take it. The second reality is the people who lived in No Amon were taken captive. Verse 10 says she went into captivity. He took as many captives as he possibly could. The third reality is the people who lived in No Amon were slaughtered. Verse 10 describes it. It's graphic, and her small children were dashed to pieces. Now, people don't like to think about God who would, in a judgment, do that kind of thing. In fact, they may look at that text and say, well, that's not pretty. That's something that, man, he allows these children to be massacred and lie dead in the streets. Is God capable of doing something like that, permitting something like that in the judgment? Flip over to Isaiah chapter 13 for a second. And notice verse 16, when he talks about the fact that he's going to, verse 9, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and fury and burning anger to make a land desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Verse 16, their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Yep, when God sends judgment, boy, I'm telling you, people die. People die. That's part of judgment. Nobody wants to hear this about God. They want this lovey-dovey God who's a God of total toleration, never gets angry, never gets upset. But God does reach a point where he judges, and when he sends judgment, this is the kind of thing that happens. And you say, okay, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. I mean, this is just Old Testament stuff. We're in the New Testament age. He doesn't do that. Okay, go to Luke chapter 19. Notice what he promises, what the Lord Jesus promises is going to happen in verse 42. If you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. This is New Testament now, 
when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. No, no, that's the way it works, friends. God reaches a point where he said, I've had enough of this. I've seen enough of this. He allows judgments to go down. And when people reach a point where he is that mad, where he's pouring out that kind of judgment, people die, children die. If a nation or a city or a state or an individual persists in rebellion against God, I'm telling you right now, God will move and he will destroy. You may say, well, what kind of God would destroy little children? What kind of country would kill 63 million babies since 1973? That's how many have been killed, slaughtered, sliced. What kind of country would allow 620,000 babies to be killed this year and next year? What kind of country? The United States of America. Do you think that God is pleased with that? He will keep the records of this, and there will come a point when he will say, all right, I've seen enough, I've had enough, and that is exactly what he's telling Nineveh here. You know what happened to the city of Noamon because you were there and you were part of it and you saw the slaughter that went down there. And the fourth reality is the honorable and great men of Noamon became slaves. Verse 10, and they cast lots for honorable men and all her great men were bound with fetters. Can you imagine you go into some highfalutin political city like Lansing or you go to Washington, D.C. and say, look, I'm going to tell you something right now. All you key players here, you are going to actually be conquered and dominated. You think you're so honorable and high and mighty. You great people of the nation are going to be taken with slaves and hauled off. Persist in rebellion against God and God will reach a place where he says, I'm done putting up with it. Now, for a believer, if he decides to execute a believer, they're going to go to heaven. So there's the beauty of the believer. For an unbeliever, if he decides he's going to execute them, they're going to go to hell. Both the Old and the New Testament say God can reach a point where he says, I have seen enough of this, I've put up with enough of this, and therefore I'm going to literally take them out of the earth. Now, Nahum is not just telling this story about Noaman just to give some scary history story. He's warning the people of Nineveh, this is about to happen to you. And that brings us to the second prophetic reality. He informs Nineveh of what he's going to do to her in verses 11 to 19. When Nahum writes this, Nineveh was getting, as one writer said, very close to the end. It's a major fatal mistake for people to look at cities in the Bible that God has destroyed and then just look at those cities and say, well, that's interesting. It's good reading and devotions. There's a city back there that was destroyed. When we learn of the homosexuality and lesbianism that actually caused God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, or when you learn of the idolatry and the immorality that caused God to destroy Jerusalem, or when you learn in Genesis of the 
God mockery and demonism that caused God to destroy the world by flood, what we need to conclude is, you know, if you're a nation, a state, a city, an individual, or even a church, and you decide to pursue things that aren't right, you're not immune from the judgment of God. Now, I've literally been to Ephesus. At one time, that was the most solid Bible-teaching church and city in the world. The best Bible teachers of the world had been in Ephesus. I've been to Colossae. I've been to Philippi, Hierapolis, Smyrna, Pergamum. And when you look at each of these places now, they're not thriving churches. They're ruins. They're ruins. That's all that's left. Why? Because they all just moved away from God. And God reached the point, obviously, where he said, I've just had enough of this. That thing can still happen. There are 12 predictions that Nahum makes in regard to Nineveh. Prediction number one, judgment would cause them to become like a bunch of drunks stumbling around not knowing what to do. Verse 11 says, you too will become drunk. I'll tell you what, trying to be led by drunk people is just pathetic. Drunk people, they're pathetic. We watch this show it's on patrol live, I tape it, and they pull over these drunk people. They slur speech, they talk like idiots. They can't even make logical sense. They don't think right, drunk people. They don't think right. They don't give any encouragement. They don't give any sound counsel to anything. You'll never find somebody counseling a right way to go in a God-mocking world because those people are like in a drunken stupor. And the ability to think rationally and the ability to think responsibly is that which does come from the Lord. So when God sends judgment, people, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to think. They have no sense of proper direction. They just are wandering around like a bunch of drunk buffoons. And I don't think it's any coincidence, by the way, that it does seem to be mentioned in multiple passages that speak of judgment. God brings up the subject of drunkenness. So it must be something that's closely connected to part of a process that leads to this kind of judgment because he keeps bringing it up in multiple passages. He brings it up often in the book of Revelation. People are a bunch of drunks. Boy, stay clear of that. Secondly, people will be so scared they'll go into hiding. Verse 11 says, you'll be hidden. You'll be drunk. You'll be hidden. When God sends judgment, that's what people do. They panic. They're scared. And naturally, when he sends judgment, they want to find a place to hide. I read an article about places where people try to hide when they think they're trying to hide from someone. The number one place where people try to hide is the trunk of a car. They try to hide in a suitcase, a cargo box. There was one guy who even tried to hide behind a vehicle dashboard. He actually had rigged up a deal behind the glove compartment that he could crawl in there. People will try to hide in refrigerators and closets. I mean, that's where people will try to hide. When God sends his judgment and they're scared, you're not going to be able to hide from him. If God decides he's going to track somebody down, he doesn't care where you move to, where you go, where you think you're going to get away from this. He'll track you down and destroy you. 
Thirdly, judgment will cause people to try to search for a place of refuge. That's what verse 11 says. You too will search for a refuge from the, from the enemy. I mean, people are going to try to find some safe place where they can hide when God sends judgment. I mean, that's what he's predicting here these people of Nineveh would do. And someone has said the safest place of refuge is always below the ground. But it won't matter. God says, when I send my judgment, you aren't going to be able to just go anywhere that'll be a refuge for you. The fourth prediction is judgment will cause all to shake and fall quickly. Verse 12, all your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. I want you to notice we change from future tense in verse 11 you will become this, you will become this, you will do this, to now this is the way you are. The present tense verb in verse 12, all your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruits. Notice what is said here. All fortifications are just nothing more than little things that God can shake off like figs that fall to the ground. So whatever you think is your real strong place of security, whatever your security is, Whatever your fortification is. God says, when I send my judgment, it's just like a little fig tree I shake, and you'll fall to the ground. In other words, I'll use my judgment. I'll take control of everything. And people who thought they really had something that would protect them, they'll discover it won't. The fifth prediction is judgment will cause people to become weak like helpless women. Verse 13, behold, your people are women in your midst. Now, there have been some amazing women in the Bible that love God and his word. Ruth, Deborah, Esther, Rahab, Mary, Martha, others. Those women were right with God. What's described here is a judgment that will cause men to act like a bunch of women. They don't have any stability to them. They don't have any, as it were, guts to them. They're not men who act like men. They're men who are becoming a bunch of women. These guys that want to enter some women's competition in athletics, I would walk up to them and I'd say, what is wrong with you? You're a man wanting to compete with women. Why don't you be man enough to compete with men? I mean, that's what you should be doing. What are you doing trying to compete with these women? And the truth is, we're living in a time in which, in many instances, men are no longer men. In fact, we're so evil, we're living in a time when some men want to be women. James Montgomery Boyce said concerning Nineveh, by this time it was noted for homosexual effeminacy. And when God sends his judgment against people, they'll be quibbling and crying and whining like a bunch of women. They'll have no backbone to them. They'll have no stability to them. They'll be like helpless women. The sixth prediction is judgment will enable enemies to walk through wide open gates. Verse 13 says, and the gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. God says, when I bring my judgment, nothing you can do can stop it. You can't just say we're going to lock ourselves in here. We're going to protect ourselves. God said, I'll just open those gates and I'll send my judgment right in. You can have your national emergency broadcast network and they can cry out to all the homes and houses of the country that there is a terrible thing that's coming and you should try and hide. God said that is not going to help because you're not going to be able to close the gates of the judgment of God. 
The seventh prediction is judgment will cause enemies to burn the city. He says that in verse 13, fire consumes your gate bars. As we mentioned in our previous studies of Nahum, when archaeologists did finally discover where Nineveh was located, and it took them years to do it because it was completely gone. When they did discover, they discovered an unusual amount of ash deposits. So this is literal stuff that Nahum is predicting here. He's saying God is going to actually allow a fire to consume your gate bars. Your city is just going to be burned down. Now, judgment fire is something that is a theme that God promotes over and over again in Scripture. He can send fire right out of heaven. He's done it before to destroy things. And it's no coincidence that those who reject Christ are going to burn in the fires of hell. We're seeing that when we go through that doctrine. That's the language that's used, and it's literal fire. We've tracked that. It's literal fire. The eighth prediction is the judgment will leave the people defenseless. Verse 14, and this is kind of a sarcastic statement that he makes in verse 14. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the city and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. What Nahum is basically saying, he says, go ahead and see what you can do to try to stop this. Go ahead and get a bunch of water. Draw your water. Strengthen your defenses. Get as many defenses as you think you need. Work with the clay. Try to reinforce the bricks. Strengthen the fortress. Do what you can because God said you aren't going to stop me from what I'm going to do to you. The ninth prediction is judgment will cause people to die and be destroyed. Verse 15. There fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You've increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers sending in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee, and the place where they are is not known. Nahum says, look, God is going to destroy you by fire and by sword. I'm going to let you be consumed like locusts. And Nahum uses the locusts to make various points about the fact that nothing they can do can save them. They've reached the point where God has made a decree, I'm done. I'm done messing with you. He's given them up. He's basically saying, I'm giving them up, and I'm going to give them judgment. The first point that's brought out here is they couldn't stop the judgment by their numbers. He said, you can multiply yourself as much as you want. You can multiply yourself like creeping locusts. That isn't going to stop it. You aren't going to win against the judgment of God. I don't care how big your numbers. You aren't going to win. Secondly, you could not stop the judgment by your business associations. Verse 16, you've increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. I mean, these were political leaders who made business deals for Nineveh. They knew how to play this political game. They made all of these kinds of business with the big business entrepreneurs of the world. They made business deals with the most powerful people in the world. And God says, when I send my judgment, I don't care who you made business deals with. It isn't going to stop it. Thirdly, you can't stop my judgment by your military guardsmen. Verse 17, your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. These were the professional soldiers. He said, go ahead and call your military. When I decide I'm going to send my judgment, when I decide I'm going to destroy, you can have a strong military and it will not be impressive to me because I'm going to wipe it out. And they could not stop the judgment by their police marshals. 
Verse 17, your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers. The marshals are hired to protect people. He said they're going to just hop away like a bunch of grasshoppers. In other words, what he's basically saying is there's nothing you can do to stop my judgment. You have reached a point of evil where I've had enough of it. Which brings us to the tenth truth. Judgment will leave the people with no leadership to help them. Verse 18, your shepherds are sleeping. O king of Assyria, your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. There's no one to regather them. The religious and political leaders were no help. They're sleeping on the job. I don't think people realize how important leadership is. They're responsible for leading people into the way that can either bring them the blessings of God or they can bring them the judgment of God. And they're sleeping on the job. I quite frankly think that there are a lot of people who are in ministries that are sleeping on the job. They're not telling people these things. They wouldn't dare stand in their pulpit and tell people these things. That if you don't get into a right relationship with God, you can anger God to the point that he finally says, I've had enough of you, and he comes and destroys you. Why? Because they're leadership that's sleeping. And they're not doing what God would have them do. And when judgment comes, it will hit them hard. The 11th truth is judgment will leave people with no relief. That's verse 19. Now you get into a kind of a metaphorical description of hell. There's no relief for your breakdown. God says, when I start my judgment, there's no relief. It doesn't let up. There's no refreshment. There's going to be no easing of it. There are consequences for what you've done, and when my judgment comes, it won't be anything that will bring you relief. And finally, he says, there's no cure. Verse 19, your wound is incurable. Now, the people who hear of the destruction, verse 19, are going to clap their hands over you. I'm telling you right now, when God decides, I'm going to remove godless powers and godless people in my serious judgment, it causes people who are right with God to rejoice. There's that scene in Revelation where after the rapture of the church, there's a martyrdom that breaks out against Christians. And they're standing before the throne of God and they're going, how long? How long do we have to wait till you go down there and you settle that? And he says, just be patient for a little while because you can know that I've kept the records of this and I am going to go and settle the score. And when God decides to settle the score, there will be a praise God because we're sick and tired, as verse 19 says, of the evil that was going on continually. That's what those people were involved in, doing evil continually. This book of Nahum teaches us many things. God wants his people to know I will eventually target and destroy godless and corrupt political powers. I will destroy godless and corrupt religious powers. I will destroy godless and corrupt people. And the best defense against the destruction of God is to be right with God. You never have to worry about that if you're right with God. Secondly, God wants his people to know that he will not permit God mockers and Bible haters to get away with it forever. Oh, they may get away with it for a moment, just like Nineveh got away with it for a moment, but then God sent in these Medes 
and God sent in the Babylonians, and I mean, they leveled that city to the point that, as I mentioned before, when Alexander the Great was in that area, he said, I thought there was a city here. Where'd it go? Thirdly, God wants his people to know that he will always protect people and provide for people who are faithful to him. The faithful remnant who looks to him for protection and provisions will discover that God will take care of them if they love him and love his word. Fourthly, God wants all people to know that the key to a safe, blessed life is being in a right relationship with God. That's the key to a blessed, safe life. And if you don't believe that, you find yourself some little book of history with pictures in it and look at Nineveh because God destroyed her. God hates sin. That becomes obvious. This book ends on a note, evil continually. God hates evil. He hates sin. He hates your sin. He hates my sin. And unless something is done about it, we can experience his wrath. The thing that has to be done about it is to believe in Jesus Christ. If you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be kept safe and secure in the refuge of the cross. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege we've had of going through this sober book. Lord, it's a very serious book, this book of Nahum, and it's a book that's needed to be heralded today to nations. It needs to be heralded to states, cities, townships, churches. Lord, we would pray that you would always keep us on track where we're people who are serious about reverencing you and reverencing your word. I pray we would keep learning and growing and we would stay on a path that we would be that remnant that you would protect and you would bless. For anything you've done in the course of these weeks, we've gone through this book. We want to thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.